Welcome to Footy Time. It is Monday the 16th of May 2022. My name is Johnny Raff. I hope you all had an amazing weekend. I certainly did because not only did my beloved D's get the job done over in the West yesterday, but my other love, Liverpool, triumphed over Chelsea in the FA Cup final in the early hours of Sunday morning. Yep, yep, it was a long one. Uh, nil all after regular time, went to penalties. The Reds were able to hoist the FA Cup in a game that started about 1.45am and finished at around 5am on Sunday morning. So I'm still feeling the effects from a bit of a lack of sleep. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about, is it? Oh, round nine. Gee whiz. We've got some teams that no one saw coming that very well could be the real deal. We've got challenges put back in their place. And also later on the show, we're going to go through some teams who are done in 2022 and should probably be looking to their preparations for 2023. In the AFL, nothing is as good as it seems, but nothing is as bad as it seems. Saturday afternoon, Marvel Stadium. A massive win for the St Kilda Footy Club over the Cats. They were down by about 20 points at halftime and then the Saints went on to kick seven goals, four to two goals, two. And the man we want to talk about right now is Paddy Ryder. We've said it before. There are very few true palmers of the football in the AFL these days when it comes to Ruckman. And, but when it comes to picking out teammates, tapping at the highest point, tapping on the way down from a leap, sort of like, I guess, a floating leap hang time, I guess you can call it, forward, sideways, behind, varying your tap work. Nick Natanui is probably the best, but Paddy Ryder is at very least in the top two in the competition. Uh, th- this guy is just a masterclass of tap work. I, mean, I think if you are teaching young kids the art of ruck work, you've really got to just show them Paddy Ryder videos. He has it all. Just total control over where he puts that ball into the path of his midfielders, but just the way he does it, oh, just looks so good. In the time of 666 and center clearances becoming even more important at the moment, guys like these become very, very handy. I'm going to go as far as saying that I think that Paddy Ryder is St Kilda's most important player. I really would. And you could make an argument for a few there, but I think it's Paddy, and I'm going to tell you exactly why. We went to the war room at Footy Time headquarters and we crunched a few numbers and we've come up with this. So, Paddy Ryder has played five games this year and he's missed four. And we wanted to look at some key stats in the games that he did play in and the games that he didn't play in. And the stats that I looked zeroed in on were hitouts for and against and hitout differential for St Kilda as a team. And also the clearance differential for when uh, Ryder was playing and didn't play for St Kilda as a team. When Ryder did play, the the total hit-out differential for St Kilda combined is plus 44. When Ryder has not played, the combined hit-out differential for St Kilda this year is minus 79. Mm. When Ryder does play, the total clearance differential in 2022 for the Saints 
has been plus 18. When Ryder hasn't played, the combined clearance differential has been plus 17. So not much of a difference there, but but that doesn't really tell you everything. So the average hit-out differential for when he's not playing is minus 19 per game. When he is playing, that uh, average differential is plus 8. When he's not playing, the average clearances per game 3.6, and when he is, it's 4.2. So, yeah, again, not much of a difference. But when you look a bit closer at this and look at the stats per game, it is a little bit more telling. When you look at this, the differentials in each game, they're not out of the ordinary. They're not something that's going to leap off the page and say, oh, geez, St Kilda's smashing clearances and Ryder's the absolute reason for that. But what I've noticed is when he is playing, they've got a very reasonable statistic in that area. When he's not playing, they get smashed in that area. So I'm looking at this game here against GWS when Ryder wasn't playing, uh, where they, the Saints had 17 total hitouts for the game. They had 77 against, so the differential there was minus 58. But in the clearances, 36 for the Saints and GWS had 46, so a minus 10 differential there in clearances. It just seems that when Ryder is there, he straightens them up quite a fair bit and just gives them at least a break even, which is kind of all you need, really, with some of the midfielders they've got in there. Um, but when he's not there, I think they kind of lack a little bit of direction in the, in the ruck. I mean, we all think Ron Marshall is probably the next person to go into that position. Is he you know, biding his time? But I don't think they're ready to lose Ryder just yet. I think they've got the perfect tandem at this point with Ryder and Marshall. And I think they need to utilise that as much as they possibly can if they're going to have success this year. I know Ryder is 34, but what he gives you is just so much value. You look at the game that he played on Saturday. He had no possessions in the third quarter, but just put on a brilliant display of tap work, which led to several goals to get the man in front. Fast forward to the last quarter, and the big man chips in with three goals in that quarter. So I think that this is a beautiful display and a great example of what an awesome performance looks like in the ruck. This is what you've got to show people. This is what you've got to show kids who want to be a ruckman. But this is also the game you should watch if you want the definition of Paddy Ryder's career. That is what he gives you. I've been really impressed with what Hawthorne have been able to produce so far this season. I think in a lot of these games they've produced some very nice footy. And Sam Mitchell does have a blueprint that seems to be something that you can stick with and stick with that process. And it should bear fruit. But I'm looking at their midfield. I don't think the midfield is giving them enough at the moment. And it could be uh, due to lack of expertise or it also just doesn't feel like the mix is right there at the moment. Looking at their... At their clearance differentials, I've been looking at clearance differentials a lot this week, but they're kind of important. And if you go by clearance differentials, Hawthorne have the worst midfield in the comp. Their clearance differential average is at by far the worst. It is minus 7.5 per game on average. They've lost this stat in every game they've played in this year, except the Easter Monday game against Geelong, 
where they broke even with 36 clearances each. Um, is this fixable? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be fixable with this current crop of players that they've got there, though. When you look at the clearances count for the year so far, well, you've got Tom Mitchell and Jager O'Meara in the top 20. But after that, there's a big, big drop-off, and I think John Newcomb's the next one that comes in around 74. So, yeah, I don't know if this midfield group is going to be the one that gets it done long-term. I look at guys like Tom Mitchell and James Warpole, and I just wonder if... <laughs> how, has there been any other group in the comp, I guess, that has just fallen away as much as these two? I mean... I really like both of them as players, but Tom Mitchell has almost been worked out. It's got to be very, very frustrating for Hawks fans to see his name week after week on the stat sheet, topping the position count, getting a lot of it. It's a, you know, that's just a sure thing. But he just doesn't hurt you by foot. And you've got too many players like that in the team. I mean, let's look at the team that lined up against the Tigers. And to be fair, the, the Hawks were very good early on and they stayed in the game and they were you know, keeping the scoreboard ticking over. But let's look at the mid the centre line that lined up. I mean, you've got Connor Nash, who's a mature age rookie. You've got John Newcomb, who's you know, he's got some promise. Uh, Harry Morrison, who I, I actually thought he was more of a halfback flanker type, but obviously that's, you know, he can push up into the wing as well. Uh, Finn McGuinness is a kid, uh, and then the regular suspects. I mean, uh, Tom Mitchell didn't play, but uh, you got James Warpole, um, Jagger Ramira, and yeah, it's kind of predictable. So I don't know. I don't know where this leaves them. I'm not quite sure about the trade value that a lot of those players I've mentioned would command. At the trade table, um, we did hear some rumours that there were about four of those players who were they were put on the trade table last year, and there was very little interest for them. Uh, look, it's it's going to be very very interesting. I think the one player there that I think they can hang their head on this year is Dylan Moore, who I would have still see is probably more of a forward at this stage, but he's been pushing into the midfield more, and he's been very impressive. So I don't know. I just think they need to tweak this a bit. Um, I made it well known that I'm a fan of the way their back line's developing. I think that's going to be a, a very strong back six uh, in the years to come. I think the forward line's developing quite well. I, I really think that Jack Gunson's playing good footy this year. Luke Bruce had a couple of goals, I think, on the weekend. Uh, and Mitch Lewis, I think, is getting better week by week. So, you know, you've got some reasonable bookends, but if they can't quite get that midfield depth right, then we're probably going to see more of the same with the Hawks. The Sydney Swans were humbled last week against the Gold Coast Suns on their home deck, but returned to some form against the Bombers and looked very good doing it. There is one thing about the Swans that I love about their game. You look at a team like the West Coast Eagles and you see a game plan and players that are often typecast to the one position on the field. So, yeah, the midfielders, the forwards and the backs. You look at the Swans and you see much more flexibility. Now, I didn't see this game live, so I am relying on the extended highlights that I watched this morning. But 
Watching Errol Golden play on the wing, honestly, I felt like he'd been playing there all year. I had to remind myself that he's predominantly a half-forward flanker forward, I guess, and it got me thinking that this isn't a one-off with this team. They have a plethora of players that can move to different positions and change things up. And here's just a few to name. Chad Warner. I've seen this guy play forward, midfield, and on the wing, and he's usually done reasonably well in all areas. Justin McInerney, exceptional running winger, but he can also head to defence and do a job there as well. Callum Mills, one of the best halfback flankers going around, but his move to the middle this year, it's been absolute dynamite. Isaac Heaney can play high half forward, occasionally in the middle. As a matter of fact, I sometimes can't even tell what position Heaney's playing at any given time because of all the hard running and groundy covers. <laughs> To get, you know, into the 50, back up the middle, lead back to 50. It's almost impossible to tell sometimes if Heaney's playing as a midfielder or a high half forward. But nevertheless, he's a nightmare matchup. You know, they had Jordan Dawson, who's left for the Crows in this offseason. And in my opinion, he's a very good wingman. but can also play a part in defence. These things are no accident. I think John Longmire has a philosophy that you need to have another string to your bow to play in this team. And you need to be able to go elsewhere and perform to a reasonable level. Otherwise, you're going to have a hard time making the team. And Luke Parker, there's another example. I mean, Luke Parker has been a warrior as a tough midfielder in this competition. And we've seen him go forward and kick some goals this year. So I think that this is a great credit to this team. They've got a lot of flexibility and they can catch you off guard with certain moves that you probably weren't preparing for. A very, very good, uh, good quality to have in a side, I guess. And... Yep, just makes coaching against the Swans that much more difficult. But John, you potted the Suns last week for trying out Jack Lacocious in too many positions. You said they needed to settle him in one. That's right, I did say that. And if you're thinking that, then good spot up, because it is actually a good statement. Uh, there's a few things I'd say to that. Uh, I've actually tried to have a bit of a think about that, <laughs> um, because... You know, the last thing we want to do is contradict ourselves in front of our very clever footy time listeners. But here's a couple of things that I've thought about that make this a bit different between the two situations. And those situations being, just to be clear, that the Swans have a lot of players who are flexible and can play in many positions. And the fact that last week I said that I was critical of the Gold Coast Suns chopping and changing with Jack Lukosius in too many positions. Um, okay, so the first thing I would say that is different between these two clubs is their cultures. The Swans have a lot of runs on the board with club culture. It's an environment of trust. And from the outside looking in, if I was a player being drafted to the Sydney Swans, I would feel like my future's in good hands. You've got a well-known culture, a well-known, um, I guess, football breeding environment, a way that things are done. Recent success, I've had a few plagues in the last you know, 10, 20 years, a winning mentality and a truckload of examples of players being drafted there and being developed into very good players. They've also got a lot of examples of players coming from other clubs and becoming better players. Examples, Paddy McCartan, Peter Laddams, Tom Hickey. You know, they've got a history of doing this, even going back to the days of guys like Josh Kennedy. 
Then there's the Goldens, the Warners, the Florence, the Robottoms. They all get drafted at some point, but they seem to know exactly what's expected of them, exactly the habits they need to form, and they come in and perform quite well. The trust element is huge, but you have to earn it, and Sydney have done that. Whereas Gold Coast, there are, and I'm going to be a bit brutal here, but at Gold Coast, there are no examples of this culture. As a matter of fact, over the Gold Coast journey, there's examples of bad culture with, you know, mucking around off-field, players being in not great training habits and also players who left for other clubs and were hit like a ton of bricks when they realised what <laughs> was actually expected of them and what, uh, what was the level that was demanded in terms of preparation when they moved to those environments that demanded more. So I'm thinking of the guys like Jago Ramira, like Stephen May, um, but in the same breath, there are great examples of those players who have left who are thriving in those other environments. Uh, I can say Stephen May again because it was a tough first season, but he became an All-Australian. Will Brody with the Dockers, Dion Prestia, Tom Lynch, Jared Lyons. The list goes on and on, and this is not a list you want to go on and on. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my first example. The second thing is at the Swans, you've got coaches who seem like they know what they're doing. John Longmire is a premiership coach. Gold Coast is still finding their way. Stuart Jews, I don't think by any means a bad coach, but they are finding their way. They're still trying to find the, the secret sauce and the, the formula for how they can produce the talent to go out there and win your football games. The Suns, yeah, they're just in a place where they need to be getting the basics right at this stage. I know it's probably been a long time and we're still giving them that pass. It feels like they've only been in the league for two or three years, but that's the way it is right now. On the exponential level, experiments like this, I believe, just won't work at Gold Coast right now. And what I mean is experimenting with players and trying to, you know, make them multifaceted and get them into uh, other positions at times. This isn't something that I think that Gold Coast team needs. This cold, this Gold Coast team needs continuity. Uh, there's an old saying that when Paul Ruse came to Melbourne, the list was just so far off the pace that they really needed to just focus on one thing at a time. And the first thing he did when he came in was focus on defence. Let's focus on getting defence right. Actually uh, getting our you know positioning right, knowing exactly what our roles are, working together as a team, guarding that bit of grass, doing this, handing over. Um, yeah, sometimes you need to know where your list is at. And that was the case with Melbourne. I feel like this is a similar case with Gold Coast. They just need to get those basics right. I look at the Swans on-field leadership. That They've had brilliant on-field leadership since the days of when Paul Roos was at the Swans. Um, guys who lead up by example and show how it's done. The guys like the Josh Kennedys, the Luke Parkers, uh, the Buddy Franklins, uh, the Adam Goodses, the Jared McVeighs even. Like, there's always a really good leadership group at the Swans. How many true leaders can you name at the Gold Coast Suns? Off the top of your head. You know, David Swallow, Took Miller. After that, I, I can't think of any others right now. It's just, it's not enough, really. And lastly, I'm having a little bit of a stab with this, but I think it comes back to drafting as well. I think Sydney draft players that are flexible to begin with. I think they know exactly what they want in a player. They want someone who... Uh, is not afraid to, to be a stopgap elsewhere and do what's asked of them 
they're not just going to say, well, that's not my job, you know, or that's not my my position description or whatever. They're, they're willing to do whatever it takes for the team, even if it means sacrificing what they like doing the best. Whereas maybe with Gold Coast always drafting high, you know, usually getting the best player available, that if there's anything that works against you as a football club when you're always drafting high, maybe it's because they're drafting the players that were the best in class and the best in that position. They'd always played one position when they were younger and have never really had to do anything else. <laughs> I mean, Sydney don't typically draft high. I mean, I know there's a lot of talk about the academy and stuff, but I personally think that's a little bit of a cop-out from other clubs. I find that Sydney get the players that other clubs could have picked, but they seem to be just a little bit different to the... Uh, I guess, to the criteria that the other clubs draft for. And it seems to be uh, guys who've got a point to prove, they've got the right attitude, but they're also willing to be adaptable. I, I feel like that happens with just about every player that gets drafted by the Sydney Swans. So it's a great question. You know, it's it makes you think. It's It's kind of like, well... If it works for one club, could it work for another? And maybe you're being a bit harsh on the Suns by trialling out Lukosius in other positions. And maybe I am. Maybe I am. But it's my opinion that I think someone like Jack Lukosius needs a bit of continuity. He needs to get some confidence up. I don't think he looks confident uh, lately. Um, but I just think it's, uh, it's something you've got to be mindful of when you're developing players. But yeah, I think it's a fascinating debate. Uh, when it comes to these kinds of questions. I'd really like to know what you guys think. So, yeah, let us know. Footytime22 at gmail.com. Back in your box. The Gold Coast Suns humble the Dockers at Metricon. I know I was just critical of the Suns, but now we're going to get to some positives because it does seem like they might be on the right track. The AFL is sometimes known as the Australian Fools League. Well, it is to me. And if you turn up on game day as a team and you are 5% off, then you are dead meat. This was the harsh reality for the Frio Dockers on Sunday. We've been loving the way that Frio have been going about their business. Some were even coining the term flagmantle. And wondering just how far this team could go in 2022. Uh, but after a reasonable start, the Suns piled on nine goals in a row before racing out to a 36-point win. So, what happened? 64 inside 50s to 36 Frio's way. <laughs> but the underrated Gold Coast backline, including Sam Collins, Rory Thompson, Charlie Ballard, Will Power, Sean Lemons, and Connor Buttery, got the job done. You probably wouldn't recognise these guys if you saw them in a hotel lobby, but that back six kept the Fremantle Dockers to 33 points on Sunday. And the Suns, they're actually 10th in fewest points conceded. You don't need a star-studded backline. You really don't. I mean, not every team is going to have the star backlines of the Dockers themselves and Melbourne. You don't need to have one, quite frankly. 
You just need one that gets the job done and will give you a chance to kick a winning score. And these guys, they're just quietly going about their business. Sam Collins would be in the conversation for all Australian. And it's a shame because none of us know anything about this back line, really. But they've done a good job. They've done a reasonable job so far this year. Noah Anderson looking a very, very good prospect for the future. 26 disposals, kicked a goal. And the two, I don't want to call them misfits because they absolutely not, but uh, the two discards from other clubs, Marbia Scholl and Levi Kasvold. Who would have thought? Six goals between them and providing them with a nice winning score there. Uh, Scholl kicked four and Kasvold with two. It just makes you feel like, I mean, I know this is a makeshift forward line, but it really is now the permanent forward line for the year, I guess. But it just makes you wonder how good this team could be if Ben King didn't go down. I don't know. And we'll never know by the sound of it. But yeah, that's a great win for the Suns. They go on to play the Bulldogs in Ballarat next week. And that could be a better game than it seems. Uh, As for the Dockers... They, yeah, they were disappointing. Justin Longmuir was not very happy at all. Said that they took a step back. It happens. But uh, let's see how they respond against Collingwood next week. Um, That's over in Perth. But, yeah, that could be an interesting one. It's time for the segment that no one likes. It's called Bury Your Dead. (laughs) Very morbid... Segment name. Uh, I apologize. But there's no other way to put it. So, we are going to bury the three teams whose season 2022 is over. Thank you all for coming today. We are gathered here on this pre-winter evening to pay tribute but also to say goodbye to three teams that will play no further part in season 2022. Number one is West Coast. A gallant performance against the D's yesterday. The limited edition framed print documenting this fine performance where the Eagles had a crack will be available in newsagents tomorrow. In the corner, we see some playful children with West Coast Eagles jumpers trying to get together all of their pocket money that they can send to the West Coast Football Club in the hope that they can make a play for out-of-contract Melbourne Premiership player Luke Jackson. Yes, the Eagle has landed in a hole And we are about to drop some topsoil onto it. The second team we are farewelling today is North Melbourne. A percentage of 53, an average losing margin of 58 points. There has not been much to hang hats on for North fans. Get games into Jason Horn Francis and develop as much as possible. That is all you can hope for. The search party is still out there trying to find the last successful recruit to the North Melbourne Football Club. 
we wish them all the best in their search. And the third team, we wish to farewell today. I'm sorry, would you excuse me one moment? Is the Essendon Football Club. With a spirited win over the Hawks last week, the Bombers reverted back to the same old crap where they didn't work hard enough at a shaky back line that leaked like a sieve, conceding an average of 102 points this year per game. The Bombers played briefly in the first quarter until the Swans had 11 straight scoring shots in a row. They had 20 tackles for the entire game at the SCG, a small ground where it shouldn't be too hard to get close to your opponent and lay a tackle. 15 soldiers did not return. And by that I mean, did not have more than one tackle on the night. Yes, 2022 is over for the Bombers. Although Mick Maltas might have other ideas. But it seems apparent that we must look to a brighter day because Essendon fans deserve better. There's been a lot of talk about this year's grand final time slot and whether to make this year's game a twilight game again or even a night game or whether to return it back to its customary 2pm time slot. Well, Gil is back from the States and this was one of the very first questions he was asked today regarding the potential for making this change or non-change as it was that time slot last year in Perth. He has said that it will all come down to what the best presentation of the game is. There will be no night grand final, but it will either be twilight or day. They've acknowledged people like tradition, but the small sample size of the twilight game and the night game has shown that our ice cream could be even better with some newer and fancier toppings. So what do you think? I had this conversation with Dan earlier in the year about it and we both love the day format but i don't know are we all just old sticks in the mud twilight does appear to be a good compromise if i have to choose one i would say that that's probably it i did like the spectacle in perth last year and i believe it was a 5 p.m local time start last year and i did like that i like the idea of a game starting in the light and ending in the dark and you know you can still do all your all your amazing entertainment measures and everything. Uh, But So I would think that that's a a reasonable compromise. Uh, I would really hate it if they made it night. I just think, to me, it feels a bit limited. Not in terms of what they can do. It's actually not. There's plenty they can do. But it's very limited as a fan to watch a grand final at night. It's just too long to wait during the day. It's... I don't know what to say, really, other than that. I know it's, it sounds silly, and I don't like leading off with something that's just traditional and something that has to change in terms of habits and all that stuff, but, like, it, it, I don't think it provides the best platform for fans to enjoy the biggest game of the year. 
waiting all day, doing all this, you know, all this weird stuff to try and pass the time, and then getting to the time slot where you really, you're really quite limited on what you can do as a football fan with your friends and family. Um, you can still have, oh, I guess, have a barbecue. You can still go to the pub and all that stuff. But there's just something a little bit different about this happening during the day, and there's something a bit different about it happening with your whole family, with any age bracket. Nighttime becomes a little bit different when you've got uh, it's closer to kids' bedtimes, <laughs> closer to some of our bedtimes, to be honest. And um, yeah, it's just I don't know. It just feels a little bit limited. That's all. I think when you've got it in the day, it just seems a lot more comfortable a lot more relaxed as a fan uh so i don't love the idea of making it night 7 p.m onwards but uh unfortunately i actually think that this could be the long-term goal yes they say twilight's on the agenda and if they move it to twilight that would be maybe the case for a few years but i don't actually think that that's where they're going to stop i think that playing in prime time gives the game more exposure the overall package looks nicer. You can do more things like fireworks and bands and just everything looks better at night, let's be honest. Um, so I actually think that this is something that they will not stop pursuing, even if they were to change the time to a Twilight game from, say, like 4.35 p.m. onwards. This is a real fork in the road moment for the AFL. I know that some people are probably just going to say, get over it, it's going to change anyway, but this is actually the fork in the road moment because do they cling to what is left of, I guess, the people's sporting code in this country? One that facilitates fans coming together over a favourite pastime, doing the things they were used to doing, this tradition, you know, the barbies, the pubs, the, you know, whatever they did. Or is it going to be an entertainment experience designed to attract new fans with bands, light shows, the biggest acts, the even bigger? Every year the band is bigger than the last. Well, after the last two years we've had with COVID, I would really like to think that the former gets a look in, considering it did a lot of heavy lifting in that area of connection and uh, bringing people together and just having a common interest that all got us through. I kind of feel like if they were to change it now, right now, to something later and never go back, because I think they'd find it very difficult to go back if they ever did that, to be honest. I would just find that slightly hypocritical, especially to the fans that stuck fat and a lot of them, myself included, kept their membership money in the clubs and still supported it, still watched whenever, you know, it, it, if anything, we were more interested in their clubs and more interested in the game. I think it would be a bit of a middle finger to the people that have really embraced the game and really sort of understood what this game was all about. Yeah, and yeah, like, I just think that's got to play a little bit of a part in the decision that's made uh, because we were all kept sane during that period through AFL footy. And uh, there's people I know that are sort of, they have a passing interest in the game, but 
they probably took even more of an interest because they were so happy with the effect that it had on the community, especially in Melbourne, especially with all the lockdowns. We we're probably the most locked down city in the world. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that we're up there at least. But uh, yeah, it was. There's so many people who I know became quite disillusioned with the game over years with all the rule changes, but they came back because of what this game was doing. And I think the AFL did it really well. And it would be a shame to see them stray away from it, their roots just yet. Oh, obviously, we're open to new things. I'm definitely open to a Twilight Grand Final. I'm not saying that I'm not. I would absolutely prefer it to be a day Grand Final. But I am definitely open to the change to a Twilight time slot if, it, if there is going to be any change. Uh I would be open to something like rotating it. Maybe go twilight one year, day next year. Even possibly throw night into the mix. I don't see why that can't be an option. Um, but maybe their thinking is uh, to get the the new fans, the new international fans, they want something that maybe has a bit more regularity, I guess, and more consistency in the time slot. Uh, for instance, the Super Bowl, you can pretty much guarantee is going to be played at about, you know, 10.30 a.m., 11.30, 11 a.m. on a Monday morning here, Sunday night over there, of course. But, uh, yeah, look, it's it's a very – it's a slippery slope. And the decisions that are made here, I think, will probably be the ones that go take us into the future. Uh, I think uh, if the change is made this year to go to Twilight or not, I just can't see it going back. Uh, that's just I know it's a little bit pessimistic but that's just the way I feel about it and until proven otherwise I just can't see it being any different again really keen to know what you think about this do you want a night grand final did you like it I mean I know that there are some people that like it Uh, are you happy with the twilight do you think that's a nice spectacle would you just prefer to see the 2pm start or 2.30 whatever it is Every single year, like it has been. Um, footytime22 at gmail.com. I'm very keen to hear what people think about this at this point in time because I think a lot of people have shifted their views a little bit. I think three years ago, I was definitely in the day grand final or bus category and I'm still very much preferring of that. But I'm open to some things as well. Uh, I wouldn't be a flat no on a Twilight game. Anyway, that's I've gone on long enough about it, but that's what, I've, that's what I have to say on that and hopefully hear some of your views on this particular topic. Just about out of time, but I want to quickly touch on the two teams that continue to impress this year, and that's Carlton and St Kilda. Um, this is a big win, the one for Carlton against the Giants on Sunday night. It's always hard playing against a team with an outgoing coach who's just resigned. But the Blues just never really looked like they were doing anything other than cruising. They were very, very good. And injuries do rock this team. I do wonder if it's going to catch up at, at some point without guys like uh, Pittenet and, um, yeah, just some of these guys who have gone down. Harry Mackay, obviously. But they're continuing to get the job done. I think Michael Voss has done a really good job in building some true resilience in this group and that's what you need you need to just have that attitude of week by week let's just go and do our job and that's what they're doing um sam walsh sam doherty 
Uh, George Hewitt, fantastic games. Doherty is just yeah continuing to amaze me with this season. I think he's definitely in line for an All-Australian Guernsey if he keeps performing the way he is because oh, he's just been an amazing story. It's so good to see. Um, over to the Saints. Well, we briefly touched on them before with Paddy Ryder, but this is probably the win of the round, I think, for me. They looked maybe not down and out, but the Cats were leading early. They were leading at halftime, and the Saints just flicked this switch. They look like, they, uh, if they're not the real deal, they look very close to it right now. I think that um, it was very easy to look at the Saints midfield in the past and say that they were a, I guess a one-paced midfield, very much a toiler midfield. They are a toiler midfield. There's no doubt about that. And they are a team that knows what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. They continue to play to their strengths. But I don't think they're just a toiler midfield anymore. I think they're a bit more than that. I think you've got guys like Brad Crouch who get a lot of the footy. You've got Jake Gresham who gets up there and you know he's got polish. He's getting better every week as well. Zach Jones plays his part. Um... Yeah, it's starting to look like a, a more developed midfield. Jack Steele could be out for a little bit now. Um, so we'll see just how much that affects him. But yeah, I think there's a bit more to this team. And they've just got Jack Billings back. Who knows? He could be a real wild card. He could be the guy that adds some polish. I think I don't think he'll play a lot of minutes up there. I think he'd probably be more of a, a half-forward type maybe. But he's... He's a talent. There's no doubt about it. He's got very good foot skills and could be the one that takes them to another level. So loving the way the Saints are going about it at the moment. Absolutely loving it. I think that uh, I, th- I honestly do think that this team can finish top four. Uh, that there's a lot to this team, and I think they're going to really, really make some noise, and they're going to be pushing. They're going to be pushing for a shot at this flag, I reckon. If they stay healthy, I just don't think that there's any reason why they can't be featuring at the pointy end. Well, that is all we have time for on Footy Time this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for your company. Join us next week for another episode of Footy Time. I have to apologise again to Matt this week. We didn't quite get to the key forwards of the last decade segment. We've just about got it ready, but we don't want to scrimp on anything with this segment. We want to have a nice, robust discussion on who the best key forward is of the last decade. And I promise that we'll be doing that next week. But, yeah, sit tight. But anyway, enjoy your week, everybody. Enjoy the footy. And, yeah, bye for now.